Today, the best way to financially protect a loved one with special needs. This is the Seven Figures Podcast, smart money strategies for women with Sandy Waters. Elder law attorney at Harris Beach, Lisa Powers, is here. Thanks for having me. Oh, again, gosh, we Sandy. love when you're on. October is National Special Needs Law Month. Yes. So before we finish up October, we wanted to make sure that we dedicated an episode to this just to provide some guidance for the families who are dealing with this. There are a lot of people who are going to jump right over this episode, which that's completely fine. If Mm -hmm. this doesn't impact you directly, that's okay. But for the people who are impacted by this. There's not that much information out there, right? Well, I think it's actually the opposite, Sandy. There's almost too much information and Ah. it gets confusing. So people think they understand. And then, of course, we know what happens if you get too much information. It's sort of analysis paralysis where you just say, oh, I'll just have to deal with this later. I'm I'm dealing with the day to day. I I can't do this right now. You're overwhelmed. You don't know what to do. And then unfortunately, there are still a lot of false assumptions out there. And of Mm. course, what does everyone want when they do need to take care of planning? They want simple and easy, which is great. That's what we want, too. But sometimes the simple, easy option can actually hurt your loved one who has special needs. I still sadly see a lot of families who say, well, we know that this person is on benefits, typically Medicaid, sometimes SSI, and there are other things that come into play there. So they'll say, well, we're just not going to leave them any money because we don't want to have a negative effect on those benefits. So they literally cut them out of their estate plan and say, well, you know, the siblings will take care of them or, oh, I have a cousin. I'm just going to leave all the money to this other person and they'll use it for the benefit of my adult child with special needs. And then we know what happens at the end of that story. Right. So that's all well and good if everything works out perfectly. But what if something happens to that other person? What if they commingle those funds with their spouse or somebody else and the money's gone? There's no protection for that person with special needs. And they're the ones who are vulnerable and can't, in many instances, do anything for themselves you know, to try and recover. And they don't even realize. Right. What they're owed. Exactly. What, what, what should be coming to them. Right. Right. And so that's just really sad because it's honestly quite easy to take care of someone with special needs by setting up a special needs trust or a supplemental needs trust. And um, just to clarify, special needs trust is the language you see in all of the federal laws. Okay. In New York, we have a statute that says supplemental needs trust. It's one in the same thing. Uh, The idea is that it's a special kind of trust that can exist for a person who is on government benefits or who is disabled and needs to qualify for government benefits. Okay. That money can be there to supplement what the government would pay for, but it won't have a negative impact. They won't lose their benefits if money is left to one of those trusts. Okay. Okay. And when we talk about special needs trusts or supplemental needs trusts, there are a couple different kinds. So there's one that's self-settled. Very often people who have government benefits will have a spend down for their Medicaid benefits. They'll be receiving income, for example, um, they can get Social Security disability, right? Um, They may actually have worked for a while before they became disabled, so there may be a pension or some other benefits that are coming from work or IRA distributions. The big kicker is that with a self-settled trust, it's your own money the individual who has the disability. Okay. It's their own money that's going into the trust. 
So they still get the benefit of using it during their lifetime. But if there's money left in that trust when they pass away, it has to go back as a reimbursement to the state for paying benefits during their lifetime. So there's a trade-off. You get to set it up. But if there's anything left, typically there needs to be a payback. Okay. We have to contrast that with what parents or siblings or grandparents, third parties can do, right? I don't have to leave my children anything when they're adults. I don't have to. I can, you know, put everything in a trust for my dogs. There's no legal requirement. Oh my gosh, Lisa, if you did that. That's a different conversation, right? Kids, um, she's joking. She's yeah. just, she's speaking in hypotheticals right Depends now. Depends on the day. <laughs> I know. Today a good day? So, yeah, we like oh, the kids yes, today? Today's okay. a good day. You know, my daughter got a couple of college applications in. Oh, we're getting there. Yes, okay. Yes. So doing the right thing. Um, so, but a parent doesn't owe a duty for an adult child to actually leave them anything. Right. So okay. this is third party money. So if if I or my parents or, you know, my cousin wants to create a trust that would benefit my child who has special needs, they can. And that's a third-party trust because the money never belonged to that person with a disability. Does that so, money impact SSI and Medicaid? No. Okay. No. And there there are special rules with how these trusts are administered, but... You know, the big distinction between the self-settled trust or what we would call a first-party trust versus the third party that's someone else's money, with a third-party trust, it never has a payback requirement to the state. Okay? Huge difference. It makes it really makes a big difference for families. So where you have that family where there are multiple adult children and one has special needs, mm-hmm. you can still set aside funds in that third-party supplemental needs trust – and then you, as the person creating the will or the standalone trust, you direct what happens to that money when that child eventually passes away. So it can go to other family members. Okay. It keeps the money in the family, but it still benefits that person while they're alive. Right. When, so that's a huge safety net. Okay. So you would advise probably to have a little bit of both? So self-settled typically comes into play if there's a spend down or if there's an accidental inheritance. Okay. Right? That's where... And we see it all the time, sadly. You know, there's a child who's growing up. Grandparents say, oh, I'm going to give each of my grandchildren, you know, $1,000 when I pass away. I should make that a bigger amount because you don't need to set up a trust for $1,000. Usually you could find a way to spend that. So if they said $10,000 to each of my children, well, $10,000 isn't enough to get a professional trustee to serve. But mom or dad, if they're still living, could create the self-settled trust, or if the individual with special needs has capacity, they can create the trust themselves, too. Okay. And and that, happily, has been corrected now for, oh, my gosh, decades. The individual who had the disability couldn't set up their own trust because when the law was created, it was this presumption that only people who didn't have capacity had a disability. And then you think about all the people who are in traumatic accidents who still have yeah. capacity and are just suffering from physical disabilities. So the the law is finally coming around. Yeah, it and, is coming along. And there's yep. new laws, right, always being adopted yes. to make it, um, right. to give them more of their independence. Right. And that's where sometimes for families, when you think about this, the idea of a trust and following pretty strict rules can be overwhelming. And people say, well, there isn't that much 
so to speak, going into these trusts, right? Professional trustees typically want six figures plus to step in and manage them. Mm. So we have this third option, which is wonderful, and it's all over the country, not just in our own backyard. There are not-for-profits that run what are called pooled supplemental needs trusts or pooled special needs trusts. So the idea is that they will take these pots of money for the individual who has the disability and they pool them together so that they're able to invest those funds. But on the books, it's still a segregated account for the person with special needs. So are they, are these not-for-profits managing the money or helping? So they act as the trustee. Okay. And that is if you don't have somebody that you want to designate? Honestly, even if you do, if that if that person that you're thinking of designating is a little nervous about following all the requirements, mm-hmm. because, you know, we have a lot of loving family members, but they're just not equipped to manage the finances, try to invest the money, make sure they're keeping accurate records, you know, file the income tax returns that the trust requires every year. Uh, and when that, that person who's on government benefits, you have to recertify if you're on Medicaid every single year. You're supposed to provide detailed financials as part of that certification or recertification. So that's where people can get into trouble because they don't always have good records. Mm. So they're setting it up, but then there's also administering it. Right. So one of the big no-nos is regardless of what type, whether it's a first party or third party, the person who's receiving government benefits can't have a cash distribution from the trust. Well, Fine. You say, great. Well, I'm not going to go withdraw money and hand you $100. But what if you buy someone a gift card that they can cash in? That's a cash gift. Right? Oh. So what, what the trustee typically will do is make payments on behalf of that person. So they'll pay the rent from the trust, for example. And can you, with this trust, you can use this money however? Right. For the most part, right. You can't pay for medical expenses that the government would otherwise provide for. Okay. And if someone's on SSI, there's some stricter rules around what can be purchased for the SSI beneficiary. And we won't get into all of that. But that's where you want to make sure you're working with someone who mm. understands. And that doesn't mean that you've got to keep someone on an annual retainer at a very expensive rate. But it's a good idea when you're making distributions, if you've got any questions, to just touch base. You know, for a lot of our clients who've created supplemental needs trusts, We'll do kind of an annual meeting just to touch base, say, let's look at the records. Do you have any questions? Because then we can head it off if there has been a problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're we're not getting into it where the first call we get is when they've received a denial letter on the recertification for benefits because something was wonky with the finances. Okay. And with the non-for-profits, do you have names or um, uh, websites that we can go to and look Sure. So locally, Future Care Planning Services is one of my favorites. Okay. Um, NYSARC out of Albany runs a great pooled trust. Um, Center for Disability Rights here in Rochester has one. And, I'm, and I don't mean to, um, I don't want to exclude anyone. There are others. Okay. I'm just talking about kind of in our own backyard, ones that have been popular. Um, but across the country, you can literally Google pooled trust you know, in your locale, and okay. it should pop up with the closest ones. What should we look out for to align ourselves with the right one? Is there anything that we should keep right. an eye out for? So I like the ones where if you call, you can actually get a person okay. who will explain things to you. Now, 
granted, these are not for profits, so very often they don't have a huge staff. So mm-hmm. understand you may still have to go through a phone tree. But for example, the ones that we deal with locally and, and even, you know, in other cities in New York, they're great. You will get a call back that same day. They do a wonderful job in terms of record keeping, which is one of the reasons where even if you don't need to sign on to the pooled trust, I still recommend it to a lot yeah. of families because, yes, you're going to pay them an administrative fee that perhaps that family member wouldn't be charging. You know, trustees are always entitled to payment commissions, and usually a family member won't take them, right? Ah, okay. But oh, I, I didn't think realize it's that. yeah, okay, yeah. Um, well, because if you take commissions, that's taxable income that you have to report, right? <laughs> so and it would be weird anyhow. Well, right, and certainly if it's your if child, you're close, right. yeah, if you're right. a close family member, that's yeah, right. So, so you know, usually what we see if it's a family member is they'll take reimbursement if they've got to go pay for something, but they typically won't take those commissions. Whereas if you're using a professional, yes, you have to pay fees. So you pay a little bit to join, and then there's a monthly administrative fee, and they all vary. But, for example, one of the local ones, it's like $30 a month. Oh, and okay. The, and to put it into certain, perspective, yes. it's not going to be. It's not okay. exorbitant. No, it's not exorbitant at all. Um, and what that gets you is the really good record keeping. They are sending out checks every month for those regularly recurring expenses like rent, mm-hmm. for example. Um they handle the income tax return at the end of the year and the reporting that has to go out to the beneficiary. And if you've got questions about whether a particular expense that you want to submit is appropriate, they've got people on staff who can answer it for you. So you really oh, are getting you're getting a lot of expertise. Plus, they're kind-hearted. Yeah. Right? The people yeah. who are working in these not-for-profits really do care about the individuals they serve. So the trade-off with the pooled trust, remember I said before that with a self-settled trust, it has to go back to the state. Mm-hmm. With a pooled trust, typically the arrangement is rather than going back to the state, if there are funds left when you pass away, they stay with the not-for-profit, which, again, is a way to benefit local communities because most not-for-profits are serving individuals who live in a pretty close geographic vicinity. So, again. Okay, you know, so it's a donation. It is. It is. But you get the benefit of using those dollars during your lifetime. So it's a, it's a fabulous trade-off. And to clarify, and I think you did mention this earlier, but when we're talking about special needs, individuals with special needs, we're not only talking about, you know, developmental disabilities or things of that nature, but also some individuals who, I don't know, had a a traumatic accident and recovered from the accident and now has special needs. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So special needs definitely applies to anyone with a disability, not just people who were born with a developmental or intellectual disability. So, for example, I have a client who's a retired teacher who has MS that's been advancing. And she's at the point now where she's getting pretty much 24-7 care at home, but she clearly has capacity and would love to be managing things on herself. She's got great retirement income, but she needs Medicaid to pay for those aid services. These trusts are available to anyone with a disability, So we need to make sure that there is a discussion and that people are aware of the options that they have. Because this particular lady, had had we not had the discussions after her diagnosis, I, I really do think she thought her only option was going to be to have to go to a nursing home when she couldn't take care of herself any longer because she doesn't have adult children or anyone living near her to manage things for her. Her family's out of state. Okay, so that's where the need for the trust comes in. She had a self-settled trust. 
She actually had a third-party trust from her mother when her mother passed away. But then as she got older, she couldn't use the self-settled trust anymore because she turned 65. So at that point, she signed on with a pooled trust, and her spend down goes to the pooled trust every month. So she has a situation where there's a third-party trust from her mother that's there as a backup. The this pool trust gets used for her everyday expenses out of her spend down. And then if she needs anything else, they're able to dip into that third-party trust that her mother left. So the money that she gets in a pension mm-hmm. or any of that, does this go into the trust? What Medicaid would call your spend down or your, quote, excess income, which I know is a funny concept. But under the Medicaid laws, you have excess income if you have income over a certain threshold. So you can keep a certain amount, and that's supposed to pay for your living expenses. But it's about $859 a month oh. for this year. So imagine trying to pay rent, buy your groceries, pay any co-pays. I, I take that back. You can pay your insurance premiums. That comes off the top. The $859 is what's left. But really, try living on less than $1,000 a month. So if you have more than that, mm-hmm. now you're jeopardizing benefits. Right. Now you have a choice of either simply paying that excess income towards your medical expenses and then Medicaid would kick in, or you can join one of these pooled trusts if you're over 65 or create a self-settled trust if you're under 65. But wow. that's why I think it's so useful to make sure if you're under 65 and thinking about creating one, that you make sure you explore what you can get by joining the pooled trust early. The idea of setting up a trust, do you feel like that is the one thing that a lot of people don't even realize they should take advantage of? I do. I think I think people don't realize that it's not just a last ditch option. I think traditionally as people have gotten comfortable with the idea of setting up one of these trusts that they're always saying, "Oh, well we have to have a family member or a friend." And they shy away from using the pooled trust. And you don't need to. And I understand it's that whole cost-benefit analysis, yeah. right? I know you're always looking for what's the best deal. <laughs> but you've got to think it's about what. It's not just what. me, Lisa. I know it's not just you. I'm using you as the example, Sandy. Um, but it's the idea that you get what you pay for. And quite honestly, in in these instances, I think you get more than what you yeah, pay for. Right. I mean, those, those monthly fees are, they can seem high- depending on what the spend down amount is for someone who has a spend down. Because sometimes people will have a spend down that's maybe only $100. So then if you're looking at $30 a month, you start to say, is there a way to avoid that? Mm-hmm. Fair mm-hmm. enough. But for people who are getting you know, good disability payments every month where maybe their spend down is $1,000 or more, $30 is well worth it. Um, okay. Once you turn 18 in New York, that's the age of majority. So even if you have a child with a severe disability, they're still considered an adult at 18, and you have to go through a proceeding to be able to stay involved in their life and be able to help manage things for them if needed. But just getting the basics in place, and certainly at at any age, it's appropriate, I think, to be talking to an insurance expert and making sure that you have enough life insurance, because honestly, that is the easiest way to fund these trusts for an individual with special needs. You can get term life insurance if you're healthy very cheaply, especially if you're younger, mm-hmm. right? And even for those of us of a certain age, we can still get some <laughs> at a lower rate. 
So I'm not lumping you into that, Sandy. No, I'm, I'm old, there I know with I'm older you. Than you. We're, no, we're I'm in older this than together. You. But um, so <laughs> okay. really, so looking at life insurance as a mechanism to fund these accounts, and then just sitting down with an elder law attorney who's familiar with special needs planning. That's the other place where I see mistakes happening. Um, there are lots of great financial advisors who understand that a supplemental needs trust or special needs trust should be set up. Unfortunately, because there's so much information out there on the Internet, you can find forms on the Internet. And I've seen people download them and create their own trusts. Uh, but if you create it wrong, you know, I've seen I've okay. seen people put that payback requirement in what would otherwise be a third party trust because they're trying to do it themselves and save money and not go to an attorney. All right. So this was a good start. But if you need to continue the conversation and and if you have like a million more questions for Lisa, you can reach out to Lisa directly. We're going to put the link to your email in the show notes. But is there a phone number that you want to throw out there or? Sure. Here in Rochester, my direct line is 585-419-8869. Okay. Next week on the Seven Figures podcast, it's the first Friday of the month. So CFP VP at Morgan Stanley, Erica Cummings will join the conversation with the five principles for financial success. You have a fantastic weekend and I will talk to you next Friday. We raise a glass and say cheers to being financially confident women. If you have a personal finance question or feedback about the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to Sandy at Sandy at RochesterBuzz.com. New episode every Friday. Listen, subscribe, and tell a friend about the Seven Figures podcast. Smart money strategies for women.